We're continuing our sermon series to the book of Acts, Church Without Walls. If you're just joining us for the very first time or you've forgotten, here it is in a nutshell, sort of the, the, the trajectory of our series. We're talking about the essence of Christianity or Christian faith in its earliest days. And I've said this before, you know, if you would have walked up to somebody in the first century and said, hey, how about that Christianity, you know, that organized religion, people would have looked at you like, what are you talking about? You know, or if you walked up and somebody said, hey, how about that institution, you know, Christianity? Again, people would have looked at you like, what are you talking about? Uh, it's notable that uh, according to the early historians in first century church, that the Christian faith wasn't called a religion. They had various religions, but what Christianity purported to say was so just far out, radical, different from what all the other religions said that they actually called Christianity the anti-religion. If you're interested, by the way, in, in the history of the church or history of Christianity in his first couple hundred years, Rodney Starks. Anybody? Rodney? Rodney? Anybody fan of Rodney? Look up Rodney. Rodney is a, a, a brilliant church historian, respected by both secular as well as Christian historians. So Rodney Starks. Anyway, Christianity was called the anti-religion because people thought what Christianity really says is, was so different from what all the other religions said. Here's another religion, another religion, another reason why Christianity was so radically sort of different and outside the box. Because when people thought about the church, early, 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 early movement of the church, they didn't have in their minds a building or a service. The church was the people. The church was the people of God. Christianity, in its essence, was a movement of the people of God. There was this radical understanding that the church was them, that there were these called out people, called for a purpose. And as a result, these people embraced Acts 1-8, which is the sermon theme that we've been hitting on, that we've been called to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And these people recognized and realized that that divine mandate and call was not just for the priests or the religious professionals, but for everybody who claimed to follow and worship this Jesus who died and rose again. So it was a movement of these people who radically embraced this call that wherever they were, wherever they went, and whatever they were doing, they were to be on a mission, a missional call to express, live out, talk about Jesus. I did this this morning, this exercise, and I'm going to do it again. This, You know, throughout the sermon series, there's some of you have gotten on to this, this paradigm shift of like Christian life. I have a mission from God. This is a missional call. Wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, God is at work, and I'm called to join God in that. And God, as a result, has been doing some like crazy things. I had some people share this this morning, like, you know, a, a, a college student saying, I just talked about this with one of my friends coming over here, Peter, that we just said, God, you're at work, you're moving all around us, and you called to join in a mission wherever we're at, so we just showed up to Starbucks one day, where we normally hang out, and I had this great conversation with this guy who believes all kinds of faiths just kind of merging together, and, and he said, we've been meeting him regularly at the Starbucks, just talking about God. That's not unusual. Crazy stuff like that happens. I'm telling you, when you become aware of what God is doing and what he called you to do. So, I was wondering if at the 11 o'clock service, is there anybody who, as you've been going through this sermon, so you just kind of said, you know what, God, are you, that God's been doing some crazy things. 
And he just wanted to share, like 15, 30 seconds, like, yes! Anybody? I'm like being a really bad parent. I'm comparing my children to the 11 o'clock and the 9 o'clock service. <laughs> Do you want to be better than your brothers in the 9 o'clock service? Do you want to be better? <laughs> just kidding. Anybody? I'm seriously. Like, just, God has just been doing crazy open doors, like opportunities and work and school. Yes, stand up. <laughs> yeah. Yes. 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 You guys, it's pretty. I'm telling you, when you, what, yeah, you can clap for that. When you look, when you embrace this, when you embrace this thing, and you begin to believe it and live it, I'm telling you, even if you don't want to, people are gonna go. Tell me about God. Tell me about Jesus. I'm telling you, stuff like that happens. It's crazy, but it's what God... Think about this. Day of Pentecost, the disciples are being prepared. Outside of their doors were hundreds of thousands of people from all over the world who had gathered ready. I mean, how crazy is that? How crazy is that? So all they had to do was walk out of their doors and God had prepared. Okay, anybody else? Anybody else? Okay, I have an assignment. Next week, I'm going to do the same thing. 11 o'clock service, are you paying attention? <laughs> or if you go to 9, you know, whenever you come. Here's what I want you to do. Here's what I said this this morning. You guys, if, you, if there's a paradigm shift that takes place in your life from saying when you get up in the morning and your attitude normally is, God, I'm going to get up today. I've got some things I need to do and I want to do and I need you to bless it. Versus. You get up in the morning and you say, God, you have something for me to do for you. Show me what that is. If anybody is uh, bold enough to take that challenge and pray that prayer every day, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, God will begin to open doors and send people into your life. Give eyes to see people around you. That's the guy that came up to me last week, and he's like, what's your name again? How can I forget? Darius, man. The dreads, the whole... First time I met Darius, I mean, not every day you come across somebody named Darius, right? I met... I was like, Darius, like king of Persia, Darius. He's like, yep, Darius. That's a cool name. Darius came up to me last Sunday. He just shook my hand during greeting time, and he said, I want to go all in. I want to go all in for God. No cradling the fence. Christian life, folks, if you're new to the Christian life, you're checking out, I'm telling you right now, Christian life, either you go all in or you don't go all in at all. The most miserable Christians I know are Christians who are walking and straddling the fence. Are you tired of that life? Go all in. Acts chapter 2. Open your Bibles with me. 
You know, you know what I'm going to do next week, you guys, when you guys show up next week? Just to, just to let you know that, that I actually do intend on preaching throughout the whole book, you know, book of Acts. <laughs> and that I haven't just secretly prepared just like the first three chapters. I'm going to stay on it as long as I can, you know. Uh, I'm going to tell you next week sort of the trajectory of the whole series and where we're going, okay? So you don't want to miss next Sunday. Uh, one other real quick thing, next Sunday, I forgot to mention this. There will be a very important announcement and update on our capital campaign. So you need to be here next Sunday. Important update on our capital campaign. Be here next week so we can share with you what that is. Okay. We're going to read actually a couple passages. I didn't do this this morning, but Matt, I'm going to read Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, and then actually I'm going to go read the Genesis 11 passage, okay? From beginning, okay. Acts chapter 2, verses 1. Uh, let's, read, uh, uh, let's follow along. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own, lang- our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. I'm going to read Genesis 11, because Genesis 11 is a critical context for understanding this passage right, okay? So Genesis 11, verses 1, uh, yeah, verses 1 through, go ahead and read until verse 9. Okay, thank you, Matt. That was quick. Here we go. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and tower that the men were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This is God's word. Okay, we're going to come to this, this really cool part about this whole Acts, Acts 2 and Genesis 11 and, and some people saying that Acts 2 and what happens with the multilingual, multinational sort of speaking is a reversal of the curse of Babel. Anybody ever hear that? This is a reversal of the curse of Babel, what happens since Genesis 11? And we're going to get to that because it's incredibly important for us as a church that desires to be a multicultural, multi, uh, multiracial, multiethnic church, okay? Now, but before we go there, uh, just brief review context for Acts chapter 2. Uh, remember that in order to understand correctly the book of Acts, we need to understand that Acts is a two-part volume, part of a two-part volume, book of Luke, book of Acts. Scholars call it Luke-Acts, same author wrote it. 
So in order for you and I to understand Acts 2 rightly, so we don't get thrown off by the whole speaking in tongues and all that, you got to ask this question. Did a similar incident happen in Luke to Jesus? Did a similar incident happen in Luke to Jesus? Because if Luke is about the ministry of Jesus Christ on earth and Acts is about the ministry of Jesus through his church, the people of God on earth, we have to understand that something similar happened to Jesus. And we know that something similar like a Pentecost, Acts 2, happened to Jesus. And it's found in Luke 3. Where it says, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Luke 3 is before Luke 4, which is a temptation and testing of Jesus and him being sent out for mission, right? So when we ask the question, why was Jesus baptized and filled with Spirit in Luke 3, that gives us answers to why the church was baptized and filled with the Spirit in Acts 2. Why was Jesus filled with the Spirit? Why was he filled with the Spirit and baptized? Church, tell me. For mission. He's being empowered for mission. Why is the church being baptized and filled with the Spirit in Acts 2? For mission. This passage is not about speaking in tongues, not speaking in tongues and do charisma. This passage about the fact that the Spirit of God falls and baptizes the church so that they can be prepared for mission. And again, we see that the Holy Spirit loves to empower people for mission. The Spirit-filled life is not so that you can pray better, you can worship louder, you can give more generously. The Spirit-filled life is so that God could prepare you for, say it with me, mission. Anyone that wants to experience the filling of the Spirit of God, the empowering of the Spirit of God, it is a man or a woman who is on mission. Mission. Okay? Now, having said that, I got to share another kind of insight with you guys here that, 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 that kind of hopefully reinforces the truth. We call for mission. Okay. Um, Acts 2. And the falling of the Spirit on the church is repeated, or similar incident, three times throughout the book of Acts. What do I mean? In Acts 4, you can look it up, Acts 4, Acts chapter 7, and Acts chapter 13. A similar incident we see of the Holy Spirit falling on the people of God and them being empowered by the Spirit of God. And listen to this. It happens in the midst of or in order for them to confront persecution. Can I say that once more? Acts chapter 4. Spirit of God falls on the people of God. And immediately there's confrontation. There's persecution. There's opposition. And the Spirit of God fills them to bo- proclaim boldly who Jesus is in the gospel in the midst of that. Acts chapter 7. We have Stephen who is filled with the Spirit of God. And they kill him. They kill him. Acts chapter 13, Paul, filled with the Spirit of God. Again, boldness to face persecution and opposition. What's the principle? It won't seem like good news at first, but I promise you it is good news. The baptism of Jesus Christ 
is told by the other gospel writers, and I want to take you to Mark's account of the baptism of Jesus Christ and tease out this principle. In Mark chapter 1, verse 9, we see the same account that Luke writes about with this insight. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And verse 12, at once... Some of your translators say immediately or right away. The Holy Spirit sent him into the desert and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. Commentators notice how that word at once has a sense of thus or therefore. That is spirit baptism, therefore spiritual battle. Spiritual refreshment, therefore spiritual opposition. Spiritual comfort, therefore spiritual attack. Here's the principle. You ready? Jesus isn't filled by the Holy Spirit just so that he could confront opposition and the enemy. He faces opposition and is confronted by Satan because he is filled with the Holy Spirit. Can I apply this? Okay. When you start facing opposition, when you start facing trials, temptation, when life gets really, really hard, what is our normal response? Our normal response is, what's going on? God, what am I doing wrong? Have I missed you? Am I not being led by the Spirit of God? Here's the biblical evidence. You ready? The more you are led by the Spirit of God, the more you are filled by the Spirit of God, the more powerfully the Spirit of God is at work in you, the greater the temptation, the greater the testing, the greater the opposition in your life. It's the same spirit that leads him. Does this make sense to anybody? Experientially? Of course it does. Because anybody that says, God, I want to go all in, your life isn't going to be one of spiritual tranquility, calm, and peace. Your life will be one of turmoil. Anybody that says, God, I want to go all in, I want to pursue you, I want to follow you, I want to go after you with all of my heart. I cast aside idols in my life. I want you. Your life will be one of challenge, testing, confrontation. Contrarily, if your life is spiritually tranquil, there's no conflict inside, no conflict outside, ho-hum, it could be that you are not led by the Spirit. You know, what's amazing is that uh, literally, in the years that our church has done baptisms on Easter, I kid you not, I can't tell you the number of testimonies I hear from people that actually get baptized, experience this amazing, enormous spiritual high. Two, three months later, I get the emails from the same people who say, I'm struggling. I'm majorly wrestling with things. A couple of people have been saying, I'm doubting my own faith. And you go, how does that happen? How does somebody go from spiritual baptism, incredibly vivid by the Spirit of God? And then, because, if it doesn't make sense experientially, think of it this way. If you are somebody who is all in for God, and you are pursuing the kingdom of God, and advancing the kingdom of God, you will have the kingdom of darkness opposing you every step of the way. Wherever there's progress to the kingdom of God, of love, of justice, of peace, and of renewal, there's a kingdom of darkness and dark forces that are opposing every step of the way, of hatred, of injustice, of pride, of arrogance. 
do you still want to go all in? Do you still want to go all in? Let's just give you an example. See, this is why as a Christian, you know, when you're involved in a relationship, and even though you may admit it or not, and that relationship is your idol, your God, there's spiritual tranquility. You're numb. Why? The least dangerous Christian in the world is somebody who's got another idol, another God that they're worshiping and is doing nothing for the advancement of the kingdom. The most dangerous Christian is somebody who has gone all in and said, God, you're it, and I'm pursuing you with all of my heart. And Satan goes, oh, I notice you. You I need to keep my eye on. And spiritual confrontation, testing, trials. Let me put it this way. Let me put it this way. For some of us, major paradigm shift, because some of us have actually believed that the safest place in the world is in the center of God's will. See, we actually believe that. You know, if I could just get myself into the center of God's will, things will be okay. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? What's that, Chris? It's the most dangerous. It is the most... You just stole my thunder, bro. Because <laughs> you're on the same page. You know what I'm saying? Huh? You're on the same page. Yeah. Because here's... Yeah. He'll give you no more than you can. That's right. That's right. Don't keep shoving it at you. That's the right. The more you overcome, That's the right. more you're going to get you to overcome. You won't preach today. No, go ahead. <laughs> so Chris understands this biblical truth that from Abraham to Paul, biblical history says man or woman of God who followed God with all of their hearts and went all in, their lives were not one of spiritual tranquility, calm, and peace. It was one of danger. It was one of testing. It was one of trials. The center of God's will is not the most safest place because God fears no one and God fears nothing. Do you understand that? God moves with intentionality and power. And anybody who finds himself in the center of God's will, it makes you a dangerous Christian. I don't know why I'm shouting again. I calm down. And if you go in... Well, who wants to go all in then, you know? That doesn't sound like the life that I want to pursue. That's how much we've been influenced by this lame Christian culture in our world. Because the Christian life says that the happiest Christian is someone who has carried the cross and has learned to die to yourself. That doesn't make any sense. Find yourself in the center of God's will and you are a man or woman who is dangerous for the kingdom. I don't know about you, but that's where I want to be. His promise was never safety. His promise was never safety and comfort. Never. And for those of you that have gotten disillusioned with the Christian life, isn't that why you're disillusioned with the Christian life? Because it's lame. Can we just be honest? It's lame. And in case you're going, well, I don't know if I'm led by the Spirit. Listen, same Holy Spirit that led him into the baptism, same Holy Spirit that leads him into battle. Christian life is a fight. It's a battle. Anybody that tells you, be Spirit-filled and your life will go really well, they are lying. They're lying. (laughs) If you're not a Christian here today, I'm so glad that you're here. You know, because, look, Jesus said, 
Christian life, it's about following him with everything that you have. And you need to know that this is the Christian life that the Bible shows us. So at least you can make an intellectual decision, right? Do I really want that life? Okay. So, oh, man, not enough time. Not enough time. So one small insight before I go on. So, so if you're sitting there going, okay, I get spirit-filled, baptism, opposition, man, that sounds like a life that I want to pursue. But, Peter, it gets really hard. That's why this is very important. When the disciples are filled with the Spirit in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, what happens to them? We get caught up in those speaking in tongues, but what are they declaring? Verse 11. Matt, can you put that up, please? Read this with me. Ready? We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our language. And remember what we talked about last week. The Spirit-filled life is not one of experiencing electrical shock. The spirit-filled life is not one of experiencing some naked, abstract power in your life. The spirit-filled life is one in which, watch this, the spirit-filled life is one in which, as these people, they're talking, they're declaring something that they've experienced, something that they've seen as a result of them being filled with the spirit. What is that? They are seeing the gospel of who God is and what he has done. They're declaring the wonders. The word wonders in Greek is megaleia, from which we get the English word mega. So they're literally declaring the mega deeds of God. They're just literally saying, God is huge. God is enormous. God is big. God is awesome. God is faithful. God is gracious. God is love. He has sent his son. Life, death, and resurrection. That's what they're declaring. They're not talking about spirit-filled life, how I have joy and peace, spirit-filled life, how I've experienced healing, spirit-filled life. They're declaring what they have seen. What are they seeing? God, 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 Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And it's so real to them, so vivid to them, that they can't help but declare it. That's what happens when they're spirit-filled. Why is that important? Because everything that ails us in the Christian life is because we fail to see who God is and what he has done. You don't believe me? Or maybe you do believe me. I'm sorry. That's a rhetorical question. Apostle Paul, theology, Paul's theology, says the same thing. Spirit-filled life. Watch this. Romans chapter 8. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For, though, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you again a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Paul was saying when somebody is filled with the Spirit of God, they're overwhelmed with the Spirit of God. That thing that happens in their lives is that there comes an assurance and a vivid reminder of the fact that they are a child of God. And it becomes real. Why is that important? Okay. I want to do a little exercise this morning. When people come into my office for counseling sessions, I listen. And then my only job is to remind them who God is and what he has done. I'm not a very good counselor because I'm not very insightful. People walk out of my office going, I know those things. To which I go, God, I pray that they would know these things. What do I mean? When somebody comes to my office and says, I'm a single woman, Pastor Peter. I'm 28 years old. I've been sexually pure because I want to honor God. I'm still single. It's like the train has stopped at the station. It's gone. And I'm getting bitter and I'm getting angry. Where is God? That woman needs a vivid reminder of the gospel, which says, I want you to say this with me. Next slide, please. Say this with me. God in his love desires what is best for me. God in his wisdom knows what is best for me. And God in his sovereignty has the power to bring about what he wills and desires. I have a young man who walks into my office. Father's dying of cancer. 
might have maybe less than seven months to live, really doubting who God is, justice of God, fairness of God. How can God do this? You know what I pray? I pray that the gospel will come alive, the truth of who God is in that child. Say this with me. For him, God is love, desires what is best for me. God in his wisdom knows what is best for me. And God in his sovereignty has the power to bring about what he wills and desires. One more example. Another young woman who walks into my office, career stalled, 30 years old, don't have a clue as to the future, and is really, really frustrated, thinking about chucking the whole Christian thing, because where is God in this whole thing? Where is he? Where is his will? Vivid reminder of the gospel. God in his love, he desires what is best for me. God in his wisdom, he knows what is best for me. And God in his sovereignty has the power to bring it about. Everything that ails you and me today, reason why we're discouraged, reason why we're depressed, reason why we're thinking about chucking this whole thing, reason why we're thinking of abandoning this whole thing is because we do not know and believe the truth of who God is. Is this not true? Are you wrestling with this today? Somebody asked me last week, Pastor Bill, can you go ahead and give like a how-to? What does it mean to, like, how do we get filled by the Spirit of God? And here's what I said. Being filled by the Spirit of God and experiencing this is not waiting around to be zapped. You know, Holy Spirit, fill me. Holy Spirit, fill me. Holy Spirit, fill me. Trust me, I've I've been there and done that, you know, for hours. Holy Spirit, fill me. Being filled with the Spirit of God is not just waiting on the Spirit of God. Being filled with the Spirit of God is this, watch. It's going to God's truth and praying God's truth about who he is and what he has done into our souls until the Holy Spirit catches it on fire. Being filled with the Spirit is not some mystical out. Being filled with the Spirit is going to the truth of God and praying that truth into our hearts in that situation until the Holy Spirit takes that truth and catches our hearts on fire. Do you need, does anybody need a filling, an experience of the Spirit today? You know what, guys? This is the essence of the Christian life. That's not just how we begin the Christian life. That's how we live it every day after. And for those people out there that are willing to admit today, like, I'm not too mature that this basic simple truth is not real in my life right now. I know it here. It's not here. I just pray for you right now that the Holy Spirit would enable that truth to catch fire. Let's talk about this last deal about the tongues and languages, shall we? Here's sort of the broad truth principle, and then we'll dig into it. Ready? The Holy Spirit, next slide, Matt, forms the new people of God. That's what's going on here. Okay? The Holy Spirit forms the new people of God. That's what's going on here in Acts chapter 2 with the descent of the Spirit and people speaking in different languages that were real languages that other people could understand. Now, you guys, I need you to do something for me, okay? For the like next 10 minutes, I'm going to kind of do some theological, biblical thing, and I need you to hang in there because if you're sitting there going, this doesn't personally apply to me. How does this personally apply to me? It's not about you right now, okay? Just, just hang in there for a little bit, and then we'll kind of come back and apply this, okay? Okay. The Pentecost. What, what did Pentecost mean? Do you remember there are two meanings of the Pentecost, and why it's significant for the life of the Jews? Class quiz from last week. What was it? What were the significance? Huh? 
First fruits. Somebody said first fruits. Yep. Pentecost was celebration of the first fruits, which celebrated the first fruits of the harvest that was to come. So it was a way of saying, God, thank you for the harvest that is to come because we get a foretaste and a glimpse of what you are about to do. First fruits. What was the other way it was celebrated? When the tongues of fire came upon them. But when was the first Pentecost? Do you remember? The first Pentecost was, people say, and this is where we get the word Pentecost, 50 days after the nation of Israel has been delivered from Egypt, they're at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God calls Moses up to Mount Sinai, and he enters into a covenant relationship with Moses by giving him the law. In other words, Pentecost celebrated the moment in which the people of God were being gathered, entering into a covenant relationship with him, who would be his royal priesthood, holy nation belonging to him. So watch this now. The Holy Spirit falling on the day of Pentecost did both first fruits and Pentecost in a way that the Holy Spirit was saying this. What you're seeing here with this multilingual, multinational gathering of people that are able to understand is a glimpse and a foretaste of the people of God, the church. <laughs> Chris, man, I need you to sit up front more. This is why I want you to sit up front. The new people of God that God is forming in Jesus. Okay. I know for some of us it's like, hmm, <laughs> Biblical theological application and then implied, okay? So here it is. First of all, the church of Jesus Christ has a multicultural DNA. So this is good news for some people. This is good news for some people. The church of Jesus Christ has a multicultural DNA. From the very get-go, any church that wants to gather has a decision to make. You got to decide what language you're going to speak in and what worship services you, you or what language you're going to conduct your worship services in, right? On the first day of the church of Jesus Christ, God refuses to choose one language. Okay? He could have said, we'll do this in Hebrew. He could have said, we'll do this in Greek. Common language. He could have said, we'll do this in Hebrew. Instead, he goes, uh-uh. I'm going to show you something, y'all. All the languages of the world. What was he saying? He's saying that the church and the people of God that he is now forming is not just for one people group, one nation, one ethnicity, one culture. It's for the nations of the world. The gospel of Jesus Christ has power to transcend race, transcend ethnicity, transcend culture. The church of Jesus Christ from the very get-go, you guys, is going to be a multinational, multilingual, multicultural gathering. It's resonating with you already. Wow, Mike, I'm surprised. I, I see, I'm thinking like the first 10 minutes just dry like information, you know, and then you're going to get to the kind of the real important. Let, let me show you. Let me show you. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. It says this, and they sing a new song, and they being like, you know, angels, uh, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. That's biblical language for Jesus. You have the authority to allow history to unfold exactly as how you see fit. He has that authority, okay, because... You were slain, and with your blood, you purchased men for God. The word purchase, similar word that we use in Scripture is the word ransom. Payment for release of a captive or prisoner, okay? You ransom men for God from every language, tribe, every language, every people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. Here's the reason why this is so important about the multicultural DNA of the church. God does not do this work so that people can get around and go, in multi-ethnicity, just so cool. God doesn't do this. So people are get around going here. Isn't multiculturalism just, just an amazing thing? What a gift. God does this. Watch. God does this for this purpose so that you and I would have one king, become lovers of that one king, 
United for that one mission of making Jesus known to the ends of the earth. That's the reason why our church is doing what it's doing. Are you kidding me? We don't do this so we can come and go, this is great, multiculturalism, diversity. We do this because the divine mandate from God is God creates this so that we will be lovers of one king, worshipers of one king, and serving as his priest, mediating to the rest of the world the mission of God, that he loves them, that he's died for them, that he rose again to redeem all the earth. Do you want to get on board with that mission? Your church is the place. Secondly, I just throw this. This is a bonus. Just a real quick bonus. Okay, we're not even going to spend time on this. The, cult, the, the church of Jesus Christ has a multicultural destiny. Again, first fruits, fortes, Revelation chapter 7. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, every people and language, standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. They cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks. And again, focus on God. Power and strength to be our God forever and ever. If you don't like diversity, you're going to hate the new heavens and the new earth. If you don't like people of other ethnicity and culture, eternity is a long time. Let me say this also. If your perspective as a Christian is, I tolerate diversity, you know, I tolerate it, you are missing out on this enormous call that we are not called to tolerance, we are called to radical love. We are called to radical love. The last thing, though, and this is where I want to spend our time on this morning, is that the church of Jesus Christ has a multicultural directive. Everybody say directive. directive. One more time. Everybody say directive. Directive. You know that Genesis passage we read? One of the most unhelpful interpretations of Acts chapter 2 has been this. Genesis 11, that Acts chapter 2 is a reversal of the curse of Babel. Do you hear that, Chris? That's just so much bogus. No, it's not. And let me show you why, okay? I'm going to show you why in a moment. But it's not. Because here's the deal. Think about this now, okay? Follow the line of thought. Because the classic, inter- by the way, the classic interpretation, very bright people who've written tons of books, very smart people who, who do the classic view. I am not very smart, you know, I'm like a, a peon compared to these intellectual giants, but I disagree with them on this. Watch. Because if you follow that Acts chapter 2 is a reversal of the curse of Genesis 11, here's what happens in Genesis 11. People are gathered as one nation speaking one language, right? And they're building this tower trying to make a name for themselves. So the sin is pride, so on and so forth. So God comes down, and because of their pride, he confuses their languages, and he scatters them over the earth. If you follow that line of train, I thought, then you got to conclude then that diversity of language and diversity of culture is a result of the divine curse. Hello? I know a language they all spoke at Tower of Babel, but I don't think Korean is a result of God's curse. You tracking? <laughs> Seriously, you guys think about it. If Genesis 11, one, you know, it's in one nation, one language, so on and so forth. And so God, because of the pride, confuses the language. So diversity of languages occurs there. Classic interpretation, Genesis 11. And he scatters them abroad the face of the earth. Then culture, diversity in culture, language, and nations is a result of God's curse. And I don't like that. I'm not feeling that, y'all. You know what I'm saying? I'm not feeling that at all. 
Because I don't think that's God. So if that's not what happened, then what happened in Genesis 11? Okay. When you study scripture, you got to study scripture in context. Right? You just got it? Okay. So Genesis 11. What comes before Genesis 11? Genesis chapter? The language. Very good. Okay. And what comes after Genesis 11? Genesis chapter 12. Okay. Very biblical scholars and theologians here. So here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. So Genesis 11, this happens. I want to take you to Genesis chapter 10. Let's see what happens in Genesis chapter 10. Because Genesis chapter 10, here's what we find. We have the table of the nations, the known nations at the time, 70 nations that are descendants of Noah, okay, through his sons. And here's what we find in verse 5, Genesis chapter 10. From these, the maritime people spread. By the way, does anybody know what maritime means? Seafaring. What does seafaring mean? There were sailors? Okay, I didn't know that. Okay, so there were sailors. Okay, the first son of Noah, sailors, seafaring people. Spread out into their territories by their clans with their nations, each with its own language. Verse uh, 20. These are the sons of Ham by their clans and languages and their territories and nations. Verse 31 and 32. These are the sons of Shem by their clans and their languages and their territories and their nations. These are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the, over, over the earth after the flood. You guys, the author of Genesis in Genesis 10 actually speaks positively of the spreading out of humanity into their nations, their clans, territories, and languages. Not a divine curse. Why? Because Genesis 1 through 9, context, hello, God gave a missional creation mandate. And guess what the creation mandate was? Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. It says this. Read with me, ready? Be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the earth. And that's not just talking about having lots of babies. That's about taking the culture, the nations, who you are, so on and so forth, and having lots of children is part of it, but it's spreading out, branching out to the rest of the earth. Why? God's creation mandate that he gave to Abraham, which he fulfills in Genesis 12. Again, context. Watch this. Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Verse 3. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God's creation mandate in Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 to Adam and Eve and to Noah was, you are blessed. Go be a blessing. You have been given much. Fill the rest of the earth. Go out. Spread out. What do we find in Genesis 11 then? After Genesis 10. Can you put the next verse, please? Say this with me. Ready? Now the whole world had one language and common speech. When we come to Genesis 11, here's the biblical, here's the the insight you got to get. When we come to Genesis 11, humanity, humanity, has forsaken, has gone against God's missional creation mandate. God says, go out to the nations. In Genesis 11, they become one nation. Genesis 9 and 10, 
humanity, obedience to God's creation mandate, multilingualism, Genesis 11, now they have one language. And the kicker of them all is this, in verse 2 of Genesis 11, God says, spread out, go out, be a blessing to the rest of the earth. And they have settled eastward and settled in one place called Shinar. Do you know what the sin of Tower of Babel is? It's not just pride, Chris. It's not just pride that says, God, we're going to make a name for themselves. Look at verse 4 of Genesis 11. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. And we just stop reading the Bible whenever we come to that. But what's the rest of it say? And not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. The whole rationale for why they're building a tower, one language, one nation, is because they don't want to be scattered over the face of the earth, fulfilling God's creation missional mandate. Which is the reason why God says throughout verses 1 through 9 in Genesis 11, they will be scattered. They will be scattered. They will be scattered. And in case you're going, that's a negative word. The word scattered in Hebrew is the same word we find in Genesis 9 and 10, spreading out. The sin of Babel plays this out over and over again even today when the people of God say, we will choose safe homogeneity. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. We will choose safe homogeneity instead of fulfilling the divine missional mandate of God to go and bless the nations. The sin of Babel is not just pride. The sin of Babel is people of God saying, we will choose self-preservation, tradition, safe comfort, homogeneity over the missional call of God to scatter abroad to the ends of the earth and make his name and his fame known. That's the sin of Tower of Babel. And that sin is replayed over and over again today. Okay. Can I just maybe bring this home a little bit more? Okay. We repeat Tower of Babel when we choose to relate to, be in community with, reach out to people that look, talk, act just like us and fail to venture out. Jesus 28 of Matthew to go to the nations and make disciples of all people. We repeat this sin over and over again in the church in America. How often are we going to choose safety, homogeneity, and self-preservation of tradition over the missional call of God to reach the ends of the earth? How much more will we as God's people choose what we know, what's familiar, because we're afraid, and yet the Bible says God doesn't call us to fear. He calls us to faith. Sometimes a call of faith says we respond to him and get out of our comfort zones for crying out loud. And we choose uh, the missional call of God. Do you understand? I mean, everything in creation points to this God, your God, the God that I created, creator. He is a constantly missional God, always reaching, always seeking, always wanting to redeem. He is constantly missional. And when a church or a Christian disconnects from this movement heart of God, we atrophy and we die. Is that not true? Come on. Individually speaking, is that not true? Our spiritual life is not the most vibrant, most radical when we are actually living out of our comfort zones and in faith. Same thing with church. This is why we're planting a church next year. 
Because you know what? I'm scared to death that new community has already kind of come to this. We like it here. It's comfortable. It's good. I enjoy it. And I'm going, scatter! Scatter! God's will, scatter! Go! To the ends of the earth. Okay, okay. So practical implications. I got to talk about our church. What does this mean? Number one, number one, practical implications. We will not, new community will not be an Acts 2 kind of a church unless you take seriously this missional call of God to go out to the nations. Now, here's what I mean by that. You don't have to go overseas. I said this this earlier this morning, and it, it makes sense in my head. And I don't know if it makes sense in your head, but it makes sense in my head. See, here in Chicago, here in Chicago, okay, it takes a lot of effort to not interact with people that are different from you. Does that make sense? Because <laughs> it makes sense up here for me. Do you know what I'm saying? Because as soon as you walk out of your doors, the nations are at your doorsteps. So it takes an unbelievable amount of effort to go, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. Does that make sense? It makes sense up here. Does it make sense to anybody else? I mean, for crying out loud, when you walk out of your doors, the restaurants, the coffee shops, on the train, on the bus, who you work with, where you go to school with, the nations are at, so all you have to do is say, God, just whoever I come across today, I want to fulfill the missional call. That's all you got to do. You don't even have to try that hard. You have to try incredibly hard to stay within your own safe, homogenous, comfortable environment. Does it make sense to anybody else? I mean, it seems counterintuitive, but I'm telling you, in Chicago, it takes an enormous amount of effort to sidestep the nations that are before you and choose to be with people that are just like you. Our church will not be a multicultural church. Look, six and a half years into this, I'm finally, I'm finally, have come to the, 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 the knowledge that our church, some of you guys think, well, this is beautiful. Look at this multicultural, look at multicultural. Our church will never be a multicultural, God-honoring extra church just because our Sundays are great and people connect with worship or whatever. It's not. You know why? Because people don't come to this church and stay unless they have deep, significant relationships with people that they know and trust. The only way that this church will be genuine multicultural is if you, you, where are you, you realize your missional call and within your own sphere of influence, your own sphere of influence, you realize I have a missional call and I'm going to go out and be Jesus to the people around me and the people around me are the nations of the world and as a result of me building my life into them and they come to our church and connect. That's the only way that our church will be multicultural. We're not going to be multicultural because we, uh, we're not. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? I have six and a half years and I'm realizing that because I got to be honest with you guys. We thought, you know, multicultural worship, the multicultural, you know, people will come. They don't, they come and they leave. You know why? I hear over and over again. I don't know anybody here. Okay, practical, you another. There are a group, okay, I'm going to be gentle. I'm going to pick, I picked on Asians this morning because I'm one of them. But I'm going to pick on somebody else. Well, I'm not going to pick on anybody. I'm just, let me just say this. Let me just say this. If you are somebody who comes into this church, and when you walk in, you have five, six, seven people that are just like you. You know, you're on just all white people, all Asians, all Latino, all African American. You just come with people that are just like you. And you walk into these doors, and you come together, <laughs> and you sit together, and then you get up after the service, and you'll walk out together. Scatter! Walk into the church. I'm serious. Walk into the church for crying out loud. It's an hour and a half. Walk into this church and go, you know what? I'll see you after the service. I'll see you after the service. I'm going to go out. 
I can't tell you how much people have been hurt who visit our church and they go, I actually tried like approaching that group, you know, and they just gave me a dirty look. I'm going, they gave you a dirty look? Like, look like, don't bother us, don't come near us. Stop committing the sin of Babel and you community. So if you are somebody who's coming together in different, you know, in groups, please, when you walk, very simple practical, when you walk through these doors, will you just commit to saying to your friends, you know what, I'll see you after, I'm going to actually go sit with somebody else, actually get to know another person. Amen? Yeah. (laughs) Secondly, implication, this is huge. Do you know that one of the signs of a spirit-filled church is that there is genuine love and reconciliation between people of other cultures. It is a sign of spiritual renewal and the Holy Spirit filling a group of people when there is genuine reconciliation and barriers coming down. Let me, tell, let me, let me just show you something, okay? When a group of people are filled by the Spirit of God, first and foremost, the gospel comes alive, real to you, right? And somebody explained this to me. How can somebody with the gospel coming alive in their hearts, that even though they're more wicked and more sinful than they believe, that they're more accepted and more, more affirmed and loved unconditionally by their creator God than they hoped at the same time in Christ, not because of anything they've done, but because of the work of Christ and Christ alone. How can somebody embrace that truth and have it be truth in, in their lives and actually have a sense of superiority about your culture or your race? How can that happen? How somebody who genuinely experienced the gospel of Jesus Christ still have racist attitudes and prejudiced mindsets and tendencies? Can somebody please explain that to me? How does somebody truly experience the gospel of Jesus Christ and still act like that and think like that? Is that possible? So the only solution is that maybe we haven't embraced that enough. Maybe we haven't had the gospel come alive in our hearts because I'm telling you, anybody who genuinely embraces the gospel of Jesus Christ, your attitude towards a brother or sister of another race, ethnicity, radically changes. Here's how it happens. Mark and I, there was a time in my life when I wouldn't have hung out with a guy like Mark. I came to this country when I was 10 years old, experienced a lot of racism and prejudice at the hands of white folks. For a while I struggled. A while I struggled. Even after I became a Christian. And then I started encountering the cross. And there's something really annoying about Jesus. He's always right. <laughs> and here's what I started hearing. Peter, here's somebody, and you know what? I'm going to be very personal with you guys today. Here's somebody, before the cross of Jesus Christ, I basically would have said, I don't want to have anything to do with him. I don't want to have anything to do with him. I don't want to hang with him. I don't want to be near him. I don't want to have anything to do with him because of all these attitudes and prejudice. Here's what will happen if the cross of Jesus Christ becomes real. Then you realize that you guys have something more profoundly in common than somebody of your own race and culture, and that is the cross of Jesus. The cross of Jesus Christ that we share in common is more powerful than any racial, ethnical, cultural thing that I have in my own culture. And I'm telling you right now, unless that happens, there will never ever be truly the ability to love him as Jesus loves me. You are so cute. Did you hear that? Amen. God has actually been amazing. You know, there was an eight-year-old, I'm just going off, there was an eight-year-old girl here today, I was talking about this, and I was going, do you want this? And this little girl goes, yes, eight years old. And then it just reminded me, Jesus Christ says, the kingdom of God belongs to these children. We adults, it's too complex, it's too complicated. You know, we just, we, I talk about this and you're going, well, but that'll inconvenience this, blah, blah, blah. Little children and go, that's truth, I accept it. 
Simple. I sometimes wonder if the Spirit of God is at work in our church because I still know that there are barriers between cultures here. Let's just be real. And unless there's deep, genuine repentance of that and the Spirit fills us, there's no possible way. Some of you Asians in there, you know you have attitudes and prejudice and racist attitudes because of hurts, rightfully so, hurts in the past. I'm not saying just forget about it. I'm saying this. What will your life look like if the Spirit of God came on you? African-American folks, same thing. Latinos and white folks, same thing for you too. Your attitudes and your mindset. What would your life, how would it look different if the Spirit of God filled your life? Jim Wallace. There are times when I'm watching the news these days because of the election cycle. I don't know about you guys, but I can't wait for that stupid thing to come to an end. When I hear, forget about my political leanings, when I hear that there are vast parts of this country that want to vote for a certain individual because of the color of his skin, don't you dare tell me that racism doesn't exist in this country. Don't you dare tell me that we need a church like New Community that has to be an alternative, has to be, to what the world knows. We have made undeniable progress since the end of legal segregation, but we have not come as far in the last 30 years as most expected. Jim Wallace, the hopes and dreams that follow the 1960s civil rights and voting rights legislation have yet to be fulfilled. America is still a racially divided society where diversity widely perceived as a greater cause for conflict than for celebration. Why? Clearly, we underestimated the problem. Since the 1960s, we have learned that racism goes far deeper than civil rights. Racism goes beyond mere prejudice and personal attitudes, but is rooted in institutional patterns and structural injustice. By the way, you guys, I have really struggled with time reading this because you know what? Every time I've talked like this, people have left our church. And some of you sitting out there going, oh, I don't want to be a part of this. And I struggle. I struggle because I don't want people to leave our church because we're so serious about this. But I got to speak truth. I have to speak truth, even if it means you never come back. More importantly, though, we have failed to perceive the fundamental spiritual and theological roots of racism in America. These surely include the historical, institutional, cultural, and psychic dimension of racism, but they go much deeper and further. In biblical terms, racism is a demon and an idol, a fallen principality and power that enslaves people and nations in its deadly grip. There is more to do, therefore, than just educating, organizing, advocating, and changing policies. A more spiritual approach would suggest other kinds of actions as well. In addition to the hard work of personal relationships, of community building, and political and economic change, other responses may be required, like confession, like prayer, like conversion, like forgiveness, and like preaching, and even revival. Confronting the barriers of race, class, and culture and gender was perhaps the major social drama of the New Testament church. Overcoming those divisions was seen as a primary test of spiritual authenticity. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Them overcoming this was the primary apologetic, the fact that God was real and the truth of Christianity was valid. Our world is looking at us today and saying, are they any different? Are they any different? The city of Chicago looks at this city and says, are you any different? Do you believe anything different? Is there a greater power? Because people out there, they tolerate each other. People out there, they just get along. Do you genuinely love and care for each other and willing to give of your life for each other? 
If the churches were to claim a call to spiritual warfare, this time against the principality and power of racism, how might the battle against racism be transformed? We might finally begin to estimate the enemy adequately. He is saying, unless God shows up, this is impossible. Let's not fool ourselves and kid ourselves. And most of all, let's not take shortcuts, shall we? Bow your heads with me. Bow your heads with me. I want to urge you to listen to the Holy Spirit and respond as he leads. Hey, look, if he's leading you to repentance, will you do that? If you have chosen safety, homogeneity, comfort at the expense of God's missional call, repent to God and say, God, change me. God, change me. And if you're somebody who is deep down inside struggling with the gospel of Jesus Christ, transforming every part of your being, including your attitudes about people of other race and ethnicity, I lovingly and firmly ask you, brother, sister in Christ, repent of that attitude today and ask God to change your Can I ask you, church, lastly, to pray for this body of believers, this community of faith? Will you consistently and continually pray that the Spirit of God would fall among us, that the Spirit of God would fall among us, and that He would accomplish and do the work that only He can do of breaking down barriers, breaking down divisions, and breaking down walls? so that this community would radically embrace the love of Christ. Pray for your church. Pray for your brothers. Pray for your sisters. Covet your prayers. just take a moment just to thank our God for this amazing gift of the church of Jesus Christ and who God is and what he has done. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done. Thank you, Lord, for who you are and what you have done. Thank you for the gift.
thank you for the gift of the people of God, of the people of God, of the people of God. God, we thank you. We praise you, Lord, for doing something that no one else could do but you, Creator God. Thank you, Lord, for the beautiful, colorful, wonderful, multicultural, multi-ethnic, multilingual Church of Jesus Christ throughout this world. Thank you that we can testify and declare through our voices and through our lives the majesty, the wonder, the greatness of this God who did this amazing thing. We say this morning, God, you are great. You are awesome. We declare the wonders of God in the midst of your people. Child of God, the commission of God goes with you. You are, and you have been called to be his witness to the ends of the earth. Start right here, across the street, in your city, in your neighborhood. You do not do it alone. He goes with you. The Spirit of God is with you. He is in you. He is powerfully at work. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. For he goes with you. Be bold. Be courageous. Be radical. Find yourself utterly going all in for this thing that's larger than you. And God will use you. God will powerfully use you to advance his kingdom on earth. May the power of the Holy Spirit, may the power of the Holy Spirit and the love of God and the unconditional grace of Jesus Christ be with you both now and forevermore. Amen and amen. Have a great week, you guys. We'll see you back here next Sunday as we continue our journey.